0: Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Small Business Administration handed out over a trillion dollars in loans during the pandemic, but it was only recently that SBA's data gave it the full story about how many of those loans that are under $100,000 could actually be repaid. SBA found the further you get away from the initial event, the better the data becomes. Federal News Network's executive editor Jason Miller joins me to discuss SBA's recent decision to reverse course and be more aggressive at collecting some of those smaller unpaid loans. Two types of loans here, correct? The Paycheck Protection Program and COVID Economic Injury Disaster Loans. What went to each program and what are they trying to do here?
1: The COVID-19 EIDL program, commonly known, it's uh, provided loans of up to $2 million to help businesses pay for expenses uh, that maybe could not be met during the pandemic, like working capital needs, fixed debt payments, operating expenses such as payroll. And then, Tom, there was the Payroll Protection Program. A lot of people know more about that. Those were distributed by third-party lenders focused on keeping, basically, people paid during the pandemic. Now, SBA dispersed over $400 billion for the COVID-19 EIDL funds, and borrowers obtained about $800 billion under PPP funds through those third-party lenders. Now, SBA has focused a lot of its efforts to recover loans worth more than $100,000. And the government is forgiving millions of of dollars of these loans uh, and millions of loans. Uh, And they're also going after fraudsters, which we know there's been a lot of fraud in these programs and and many others during the pandemic. And they're obviously working with legitimate companies who are on the hook to pay back these loans. Now, SBA says so far about 73.6% of all COVID idle portfolio is uh, either... Paid back their loan, is on payment too low to pay it back, is being deferred or slightly past due. The government projects the the program included an estimate of about a 37% default rate. Now, additionally, Tom, SBA says about 96% of all PPP loan portfolio has been forgiven in full or part. That represents about $761 billion. And then those who haven't been forgiven or or fully forgiven and do have to pay some of it back, the borrowers have to pay back up to have about five years to pay that back. So there's a lot been going on, but I think it's it's really important, Tom, to understand what we're talking about here. These are loans. In both these programs, under $100,000.
0: Well, it sounds like a trillion dollars is out the door for good anyhow when you get, get around the outside of it. But you said SBA did reverse course specifically, and they want to try to be more aggressive in those under $100,000 loans. Presuming they have the capacity to get after them, why do they make that change?
1: The simple answer is data, they have better data. We hear this all the time. Agencies need better data to make better decisions. I, I you know every every vendor, every CIO, every data scientist says that and I think this is actually a perfect example of that. In many ways, Tom, we can say it's a, it's, a, it's a better news story. We can't necessarily say it a good news story, but a better news story. Over the last three years, SBA's data has just gotten better and better and it understood what is possible. In this case, it realized that the number of loans under $100,000 was actually much larger than it thought. Its latest analysis and the fourth since April 2022 found that the default population was about 439,000 loans worth about $7.2 billion. Now, Tom, again, prior analysis done in April, September, again in February of 2023, prior analysis considered this initial projected default population about 80,000 loans, worth about 1.4 billion dollars. So we're talking about 6 billion more dollars almost that they say hey, we could recover this and when they look at that number all of a sudden that denominator 7.2 billion dollars was much higher and the cost to get that money back was actually did not increase at the same scale. So they said okay, we this becomes more cost effective for us to go after that 439000 loans, that that population. And again, the cost to collect is not going to go up in the same way. Initially, Tom, they thought, well, the cost to collect those loans under $100,000, that $1.4 billion, just it wasn't worth it, right? And they have authority under uh, certain laws, the debt collection law, that basically says, if it's going to cost the government more to collect the money than they get back, you can forgive or decide not sure. to, to get those loans. And I think that's that's initially what they did.
0: All right. Sounds like they did this with a compass and a, uh, and a triangle and a crayon on a board to find out where the curves would cross and figured they could get there. And so what do they have to do next to actually get this loan collection underway?
1: There's a couple things that are going on that they're really kicking off now. First thing, Tom, is they are giving people and businesses a 60-day goodwill exemption period that started January one goes through March third. So they won't be kind of going out, quote unquote, going after people until after March third. Uh, over the next two months, they're going to be talking uh, with these borrowers to help uh, to encourage them to apply for forgiveness, uh, to re- re- be aware of repayment options, uh, looking also at potential hardship repayment plans, and then obviously it's going to also really work with other people to ramp up its own collection efforts. Uh, while, you know, it has some people and technology in place, it's re- but, but the idea of reviewing and processing collections for 439,000 loans obviously will take resources. And I think that's another thing they're starting to look at and say, okay, what do we need to really go after these loans? And how many of those loans can be recovered? How many are, are still in process of being recovered? Let's give people some time. So things really won't kick off the ground until, in, in, until well into March.
0: And early on, Jason, there was pressure by members of Congress about that decision by SBA to not recoup these loans. Did the congressional pressure to go after them play a role in the agency decision?
1: The agency won't admit it, but and Congress will obviously, <laughs> lawmakers will definitely take credit for that. But I think there's probably a little bit of pressure on SBA to continue to look at this data, really continue to understand the data. I heard from Senator Joni Ernst, the ranking member of the Small Business Committee, and obviously she was uh, very happy that SBA made the decision to reverse course. Uh, she continues to call on SBA to collect delinquent and fraudulent COVID loans. We know the the fraudulent activity among these COVID loans is huge across the board. Every agency is facing it, and. Every Agency, you see, Inspector General reports come out daily, weekly about, sure. hey, we collected this much money, we prosecuted this many people. So uh, I think, on uh, one hand, you know, the pressure from people like Joni Ernst, people like Congressman Roger Williams, the chairman of the Small Business Committee, I think have really played some role in keeping this issue in the forefront, in you know, shining light on the issue. And obviously, uh, Roger Williams told me his committee is going to look into why these loans, this analysis wasn't available previously and what changed. So I think you may see some more interest from lawmakers in in the springtime. Interestingly enough, SBA pushed back against that criticism as well. You know, they say that they had the right under, again, the Section 3711 of the Debt Collection Improvement Act of 1996 to forego certain loans. And they said, listen, we... Just didn't make a big announcement about this th- using the three seven one one authority because we wanted borrowers to repay their loans, and they feel like Congress and, and some members really put out these public statements creating confusion that SBA was just you know forgiving loans, not collecting on loans, and and SBA says those were actually harming their efforts to to get people to uh, pay back and not default. Sure. So again, Tom, it all depends where you sit, whether or not how much pressure it worked and, and didn't, but I think the the point here is that. Shining the light on it, keeping this in in, in the, the forefront, uh, did help keep SBA moving forward, to keep them with the idea of, okay, how much analysis can we do? How much more can we do to really understand the data? And this goes back to what I was saying at the beginning, Tom. It's all about the data. Understanding the data can help drive better decisions.
0: And balancing the budget $100,000 at a time, maybe. Federal News Network's Jason Miller, thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And be sure to check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
3: and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission.
2: Yeah, excellent. We're we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Now. Oh, great. Yeah, it's um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many
3: especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made. And I realized in my own sense, I wasn't listening to very different opinions. And I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening, I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful.
2: Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, Chief People Officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus?
3: Isn't that a great title? I just love the title, Chief People Officer. And I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA. At this point in time, we're only four years young as an agency. So we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in in very new ways.
2: This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership?
3: There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life and I think because first and foremost she had a strong family and a strong career and that's something I always wanted and I saw her first as my mother but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia which was her chosen field but I always knew her family came first and as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married, for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins